Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invite me in. I needed clothes and you clothe me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needed clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you give me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you give me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thank you. Good morning. Today, we're going to be carrying on our series looking at questions that Jesus was either asked or he answered. And we're doing this because we find out so much in life through questions. And time and time again, as we read the New Testament, I'm struck by how many times Jesus made a, a, an incredible point through simply asking a question or responding to one. Now, today's a little bit different in that we're looking at a conversation that in one sense is still to come. Here we see this passage in Matthew speaks about events when Jesus will return. Now that's not just a, a far off date that might or might not happen, that is a future certainty. And here we see this conversation that uh, typifies the conversations between mankind and God 
on the day of judgment. It, it almost is that sense of, uh, uh, of bringing understanding to events that are to come by looking at events that have gone by. So as we look at this, I want us to be thinking about how are we living our lives and how will they affect that future day of judgment? You know, sometimes events in the future we really look forward to, don't we? We look forward to with an excitement and uh, we can't wait for them to happen. Other events we might look forward to, but with a sense of trepidation. Maybe you're, if some of you, if you're going off to university in September, you're going to be thinking, I wonder what it's going to be like that first day when I'm away from home, or that might fill you with excitement but also there might be a sense of reluctance or a sense of trepidation or, or some fear in there. Maybe the first day of a job is something very similar. How much more the day when we will stand before the judgment seat of God? In one sense, for those of us who are Christians, who know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that is a great day. But also for those who don't, that is a terrible day, a day of judgment, a day to fear. This passage that we're looking at is part of the Olivet Discourse. And that's the uh, this, this uh, few chapters where Jesus is speaking about events in the future. He's speaking about events that would happen. Uh, and this was taking place shortly before he was crucified. He, was to, he talked about events that would happen in the more immediate future with the destruction of the temple, but also events that would happen way in the future. In this passage, he looks forward to the day when he will return. And at the heart of it, there's a, a few things that we need to understand that these things point to the fact that Jesus is king, that he will return in glory and that he will judge the living and the dead. We are uh, the point of this passage is that we are really challenged about what is our attitude as we wait for that day. So we're going to begin by just saying that uh, point number one, there is a future day where Jesus will judge the world rightly. There is a future day where Jesus will judge the world rightly. Here we see in verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was up at Mudshoot. Uh, we have an allotment there. And right there, there's a field where she uh, sheep and goats literally are mixed in together and they roam around together. And Jesus uses that picture of a shepherd separating sheep and goats. But this passage reminds us that there is a future day of judgment. You know, the Bible is absolutely explicit about that fact that there is a future day 
of judgment. And you and I need to be aware of that. And we need to live our lives with that fact in view. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 to 2, it says that in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Again, that future judgment and then the encouragement of how to live in the light of that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus will judge each of us for our actions in the here and now. And because of that, we need to live with that future certainty in mind that there is a day of judgment. One of the uh, phrases that you've probably heard echoing over the last few weeks as uh, there's been this very public discussion of racism, this phrase, no justice, no peace. And uh, I want us to uh, almost look a bit further that and to see that Jesus judges because he is just. And actually, without judgment, there is no justice. And so as we look to the fact that there is a judgment, maybe your first initial response is to say, well, how can anyone judge me? And in one sense, we're right. When we look at others, we say, who are you to judge me? But Jesus is king. He is the one through whom all things were created. And he will judge because he is just. And in fact, for me as a Christian, the idea of a day of judgment speaks of the justice of God. When I look at this world and see so often the absence of justice, when we see that very often injustice rules, it makes me realize that I have a hope in the character of God. And the very fact that Jesus will judge each one speaks of his justice, even when there is no earthly justice. I uh, read this quote by Jackie Hill Perry. She's an American hip-hop artist and she said, "Um, I've listened to arguments as to why hell does not exist. I'm grieved by what it communicates to those who have been sinned against. God's ultimate justice on those who've committed injustice offers hope to all. Where a justice system has failed, God won't. Vengeance will be his. I want you to think about that, that sense in which the divine uh, judgment that is to come actually offers hope to those who've been sinned against. It shows that God knows and God cares. I want us to look and think about this picture here that Jesus offers to us. We, we see this title is used of Jesus, the Son of Man. This is speaking of events after Jesus returns. It says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. What we see here is that it uses the phrase, all 
the angels. Jesus is accompanied by a heavenly host. This is Jesus in glory. This is Jesus, King of heaven. We see that all the nations are assembled. What we see is the the universal nature of judgment that each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. This is public. It's universal. It's Jesus in all of his glory, surrounded by angels. Why? For the purpose of judging. I love this idea here. We see Jesus, uh, the, the elements of Jesus as a shepherd, as a pastor, the one who cares. Jesus as shepherd, but also Jesus as king, the one who judges. And if you're watching today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that Jesus loves and cares for you. He is the good shepherd, but he is also the king that one day will judge the living and the dead. Point number two, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. Now, in one sense, they actually might look quite similar. You know, the sheep I was talking about in the field at Mudshoot, actually some of them look quite similar to the goats. And, you know, I don't really know much about animals and I have trouble telling them apart. And Jesus will take those which look similar and he will judge and separate between them. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, Jesus will separate mankind. You know, um, it was quite common at the time for a, a shepherd to keep both sheep and goats together. But then overnight they could cope with different circumstances. So they would often have to separate them. The sheep were a bit more hardy and could withstand more of the cold, but the the goats would often need a bit more help. They didn't have as much wool maybe. And so they would have to be separated and taken to different locations overnight. One needed more help than the other. We see here that Jesus doesn't bring mankind together. No, Jesus separates mankind and then Jesus gathers those who belong to him. Jesus is the judge and as a righteous judge, he separates between us. You know, in these verses 34 to 40, we see one aspect of this judgment. We see how Jesus uh, uh, speaks um, in verse 34. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And as we go on, Jesus said to them, because uh, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And it's really interesting. If we look at verse 37, the people say, then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you verse 40 the king will reply truly i tell you whatever you did for these 
one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus here is acting on his father's behalf. God the Father has appointed Jesus, his son, to bring judgment. We see the kingdom, the the kingdom that was prepared for, for the righteous, right from the very start. God executing his judgment through his son, Jesus. And, 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 you know, he points here, Jesus, to some very simple, very basic things, taking care of those in need. What is interesting is that these people are unaware of their own merits. They're not saying, of course, Jesus, we knew we did good. And therefore, you have welcomed us into your kingdom. Rather, in one sense, they seem surprised by it. You see, they're not standing on the basis of their own good works. But Jesus nonetheless says to them, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And it's on that basis here which Jesus begins to unpack his judgment, why uh, some are brought into eternal life and others are sent to everlasting damnation. This is a very serious thing. And now, just now, we're going to hear from Mike, who's going to talk to us about some of his journey in life and how he has used his gifts to help and serve the body of Christ in in different locations. But I want you to be thinking, what is the, while Mike's speaking as well, what is the point Jesus is making here? And we're going to pick up on some of that in a little while. Good morning, everyone. I became a Christian at university here in London while I was studying biology. God convicted me of many things in many areas of my life. I was so grateful for his forgiveness. I tried to align all of my life with what I understood of his will, including whatever career I might have. In the late 1960s, world food production was less than it is today. So it made sense that I should move from biology to agriculture, which led me to having a second degree in crop production. Then, Lord, how should I now use this? Well, go to where the need is greatest. And skimming through a New Scientist magazine, I found the Commonwealth Development Corporation, who needed agronomists and managers for the overseas businesses that it was setting up. This seemed the right kind of job. I didn't realize what a blessing this was going to be. Working in five countries for 25 years, getting to know local people, and in particular, local Christians. In the Solomon Islands, in the South Pacific, where I was sent first, I discovered there was a small Bible-based secondary school at the edge of the plantation that I was helping to build. I spent a lot of time with the students there, exploring the countryside with them and speaking in their church. Their choir sang outside my house the night before I left. I was transferred to Papua New Guinea, where I didn't know anybody and didn't speak the language. I'd heard that there was an Australian Christian in the small town where I was. But how to find him? 
I prayed, Lord, please help me to find this guy. And I went for a walk. I didn't know where I was, but I ended up at the house across the street from where this brother lived. My principle was that I should serve local Christians as well as I could. And I am blessed now because of the, the brothers that I knew then 40 years ago are on my Facebook today. Some are pastors and some are evangelists. After three years, I was moved to Swaziland in South Africa to be the technical manager on a sugarcane estate. I didn't know anybody there either, but a friend of a friend knew a South African who was working there for Transworld Radio who were broadcasting the gospel from there. Through him, I met Barbara, who was assistant. Through him, I met Barbara, who was his assistant and who became my wife. Friends from Solomon Islands encouraged us to support another Solomon Islander, Matthias, at a Bible college in Papua New Guinea. Today, Matthias is the leader of the nationwide South Seas Evangelical Church. He stayed with us when we lived in Cheltenham a few years ago. And I've been with him to speak to pastors in the Solomons about how Christians should cope with what is called development. In Cheltenham, where we lived in two, from 2001, we followed the same principle of serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We found out who the Christians in our road were and arranged to meet with them monthly to pray for our neighbours and for each other. In Cheltenham too, a guy on drugs, after stealing some money from my church, became a Christian when he was in hospital through a believer who was in the next bed. He had been much abused as a child, was rejected by his mother, and as an adult was abusing himself with various mixtures of drugs. He's in prison today where I've visited him. He is frightened of being released later this year because he knows he's unlikely to cope. I ask for your prayers for him. His name is Greg. Jesus gives us living water. Refreshment from the Holy Spirit that springs up inside us. And this goes together with a passage that Tony is preaching about. It is the overflowing of Jesus that leads us to visit the sick, to love strangers, to give food to the hungry and to visit prisoners. To him be the glory. Amen. Thanks, Mike. So point number three here is in fact a question. Is Jesus saying here that we get to heaven by doing good works? Is Jesus saying we get to heaven by doing good works? You know, you could look at this passage and almost imagine that salvation isn't necessarily by faith, but actually by charity. And in fact, I've heard people preach that. And, um, you know, this passage is one of those passages that people very often hang all kinds of doctrine on and they preach it out of context and they take a phrase and a word in there and they come up with something that's not true or fitting with, I believe, the wider context of the Bible, but also the point that Jesus is making here. You see, the idea that that these people entered into the kingdom of God, came into heaven simply 
by taking care of the poor and and uh, and visiting prisoners and looking after the sick. Those are all good things. But the idea that those good deeds are enough to earn someone a place in heaven just doesn't fit with the teaching of the Bible. Last week, I'd encourage you, if you missed last week's message, Rob reminded us very powerfully, Rob Scott, as he talked about um, and how none of us are good enough on the basis of our own deeds to get to heaven. No, Jesus is talking about something deeper here. He's not describing, when it talks about these good deeds they did, he's not describing that as the way that, that as the means that enabled them to enter into heaven. No, these are the characteristics of those who entered into heaven. So in other words, it's not because of these things that that we are forgiven. It's not because we do good deeds, but because we are forgiven, because we know Christ. These are the characteristics of those who love and follow Jesus. I think the key phrase here it's, is the one that is, is that you, you did these for one of the least of my brothers. I think it's really important we understand and we unpack that. So who are the least of these brothers? Well, they're fellow disciples, they're fellow brothers and sisters of Jesus. They are followers of Christ. They are those who carry his message and are in need because of it. So Jesus is describing the actions of people taking care of his brothers and sisters, those who know him. This isn't Jesus describing uh, as brothers every human being in some kind of cosmic brotherhood of man sense. No, this is, if we look at Matthew's gospel, we see very clearly when Jesus uses the term brothers, he means those who are his disciples. If we look at Matthew chapter 12 verse 46 to 49, we see while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So here we see that those who are Christ's followers, those who do the will of God, they are his uh, mother and brother. I think that's what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 8, 20. You know, Jesus uh, addresses someone who wants to follow him by making it clear that Jesus himself and others who followed on from him would have to be dependent upon others. When Jesus sends out the 72, he sends them out in need. He makes it clear that they weren't to take uh, other things with them, but they were to make themselves vulnerable and to rely on others for hospitality and to be looked after. The, the point being, and the, the context here is that if we reject those who carry the message of Jesus, then we very clearly reject the message of Jesus himself. If we reject Jesus' message, 
then we will also reject those he sends. You see, Jesus so identifies with his church, the message of Jesus, the people of Jesus. They are so linked into who Jesus is. And by uh, taking care of and accepting and loving and meeting the needs of those who brought the good news of Jesus, these people were in fact taking care of Jesus himself. Matthew 10 uh, in verse 40 says, Jesus says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. We see this picture that bruise builds up throughout Matthew that receiving Jesus people, his followers, those who carry his message is in fact to receive Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that his followers and his disciples would be sent in need. And that's how it's been for the church throughout history. Those who follow Jesus, who preach the good news of his kingdom, far from being those who live a life of luxury, have often had to be accustomed to difficulty. Jesus himself had the set himself said of himself that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And followers of Jesus throughout the centuries that followed have gone and been in need, have suffered for their faith. It's a it's a it's a very um, abnormal situation we find ourselves in in the West that as followers of Jesus, we live often in relative affluence. We have so much. Jesus makes the point that we need to be willing to forego earthly comfort we need to be willing to forgo the certainties of this life to be his followers you know this challenges us partly this idea of jesus followers going in need it challenges us with our idea that we are strong and that others need our help it challenges the mindset of the western church that we have so much to offer the church in the developing world the 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 fact of the matter is, actually, we are so desperately needy. Our situation is abnormal. And actually, we need to come not from a position of of basking in what we have, but actually to realize our need. And that as followers of Jesus, we go not from a position of strength, but often from a position of weakness. To be very clear, the righteous in this passage are those who receive Jesus and because they have received Jesus they love and care for his people this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about those who took care of him he's talking about those who because of their love for Jesus extend hospitality love and care to his people. Now, of course, the Bible teaches us in many places that we are to care for the poor, full stop. 
But actually, the first priority of God's people is to care for other Christians. And that's why as a church, we're so committed and we see our responsibility to share our resources with our mission partners, with those in need in other places. Yes, helping in wider society, but firstly, helping to support our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, as I said earlier, these people were surprised almost they, they say, Jesus, when did we see you in need? You see, for them, it was natural to take care of God's people. And actually, for you and I, I want to challenge us. Do we love God's people? Do we take what we have? Do we take whatever we have, our homes, our possessions, our skills, our time and our talent? And do we use them to serve others? I was very struck by the fact that actually we're going to be judged by what we have and the opportunities we have, not by what we don't have. And then lastly, there are very real consequences to our actions. Just as Jesus praises and celebrates and welcomes into his kingdom those who took care of the poor and needy, those who were followers of Christ, Also, he then speaks to another group and we see that what happens there is a terrible and stark warning. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal flame prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. And you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Just as the first group of people are surprised at the reward they have, the second group are surprised at their fate. You see, maybe they looked like Christians. Maybe they were even part of a church. Maybe they even worshipped God. But their hearts were far from him. They failed to recognise Christ in his body. You know, a number of years ago, we were doing outreach to the homeless and uh, Annie had an estate car at that time. And uh, before we go early in the morning, we'd park up and pray with a couple of the guys before we gave out the tea and sandwiches. And we had a service on the street there for the homeless guys at Victoria. And uh, occasionally others would come and bring their friends to help. And one day this guy shows up and the car is full of people. And we've got in the boot was the tea urn and the eggs and sandwiches and all sorts. And this guy shows up who's a friend of a friend of ours. And so Annie looks at him and just says, oh, jump in the boot. We're going to pray. So this guy looks a bit baffled anyway, climbs in through the boot and is kind of hunched over the tea urn and, 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 and joins in this prayer meeting. And afterwards we asked our friend, oh, who's this and he said well he's one of the richest property developers in London and he and he said then said and you just had him jump in the boot of your car and hunch over a tea urn and we were shocked and surprised and we thought if only we'd known who it was we probably wouldn't have done that although knowing Annie she'd have probably done the same anyway but in one sense if we'd have known who he was we might have treated him 
differently. And that's the excuse of these people. They say, Jesus, if we knew it was you, we'd have never behaved like that. And what that betrays is their heart. What it betrays is the fact that although they said they were followers of Jesus, their actions spoke very, very different. This is a clear and frightening warning. The picture, the imagery here of, of hell, of a lost eternity. The biblical picture of hell is ongoing, everlasting torment. And I don't say that just to frighten you, but it is the picture that Jesus gives. It's the picture that the New Testament portrays. You know, James, the book of James speaks about true religion as being to care for the orphan. You know, we are in danger if we think a converted mouth is enough to get us into heaven. We need to have a converted heart. We need to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We need to have turned from our sin. We need to turn from our selfishness and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Even if we do the most amazing works, even if we take care of the poor, even if we clothe the naked, unless we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we will go to a lost eternity because our good deeds are never, ever good enough. Only faith in Jesus is enough to make us right before God. And if you're watching and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you know, I know some people who do exceptionally wonderful acts of service to those in need and yet don't know Jesus as, as their Lord and Savior. And if that's you, I urge you, I plead with you, put your trust in Jesus because your good deeds, wonderful as they are, will never ever be enough. But similarly, for those of us who know Jesus, you know, even if we say we know him with our mouths, even if we attend church, we cannot know Jesus truly in our heart and have a hard heart towards people. This passage of scripture is real and it's frightening because it challenges Christians to live as Christians. It challenges us to live as those who are different. If we really know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then it affects our life. There's something in that about repentance of turning from living selfishly and turning towards following Jesus. You know, this passage where Jesus speaks about hell, like in fact, I think the vast majority of passages where Jesus speaks about hell is not written to frighten those who aren't followers of Jesus but it's to warn those who are. And so as a, a pastor and as somebody who loves our church, I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, when Jesus spoke about hell, it wasn't to non-Christians. It was primarily toward Christians to warn them, to be sure of their faith and to make sure that their faith was alive and was real. So I want to encourage you as those who know Jesus, live a life of generosity, of love, of really taking care of God's people. Be extravagant 
in your generosity towards others. Because in so doing, we actually reflect our our love towards Jesus. How we take care of and how we relate with God's people speaks about the reality of our faith and our attitude towards Jesus himself. God bless you.